supervised facilities to manufacture for us because what we say is in them is in them because they work because if you're not happy i'll give you your money back and because top trainers and veterinarians in thoroughbred racing standard bread racing three-day eventing and barrel racing all trust in brl equine shouldn't you to find out more how flexify ha unlock Leader Shield and EPO Equine can help you. Contact me, Joseph Volante, 215-501-6880. This is the Going in Circles podcast, hosted by Horseman Chuck Simon. To become a sponsor, to suggest topics, or for questions, email goingincirclespodcast at gmail.com. And log on to our Facebook page, Going in Circles Podcast. Here's your host, Chuck Simon. All right, we're back for the remainder of the second hour. Um, Gen Nation, check it out on on YouTube. Subscribe, and uh, you know you might get lucky and, and and get some free money if the the boys hit another another big pick five. Um, but the the fact of the matter is that uh, regardless of your 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 feelings about how they get it done, uh, they they have a good following, and and it's guys to bet. That's what we need. The the game is built on degenerates. We don't want to hear that, but that's the truth, and um, you know that, that's how it goes. Um, we're gonna, we are going to have a show, by the way, on Friday. Uh, Jason and Barry are going to break down all the. Uh, I guess it's a bad word to use. Jason and Barry are going to preview the card on Saturday. Uh, Ten stakes. Um, I'm sure there'll be a couple maidens in uh, uh, allowance races, most likely grass on the undercard. Um, but uh, it probably won't be out till a little bit later on Friday night, but certainly uh, um, you can listen to it on the replay on Saturday morning before the races, though the races at Gulfstream Saturday will probably start uh, somewhere around 6 o'clock in the morning, it seems like, to get the card in. Um, our next guest is, is a, a, another, uh, another famous person on racing Twitter. Uh, he, he might be more famous for uh, for training his son to be uh, the next Steve Kerr. Uh, with us is a Saratoga Dan. Dan. Hey, Chuck, how are you? Good. Good to have you on. Appreciate you, you, be on. you giving us some time today. Uh, how's your, uh, what grade is your son in? He's sixth grade. Sixth grade, man. Wow. He, he's really... It's amazing because you know you've been putting videos up of of him working out and and uh, uh, you know doing a lot of basketball drills for for quite a while now, and it, it's amazing how much bigger he's gotten. He's gotten, uh, um, I mean, I, I would have guessed he's like fourteen or fifteen years old. Yeah, I mean he's he's always been a pretty he's always been bigger when he was younger, and so when I got him started, probably in first grade picking up a basketball. You know, I kind of noticed he had some talent, and uh, I guess I kind of always tried to train him when he was younger. I wanted him to always play like a guard because, you know, otherwise I'll just put him down under the basket, and I knew if he ever had a chance in the sport, he had to play like a guard even though he was the biggest kid. So I've always, you know, been training him 
with that thought, like put like a guard even if you're bigger. But you know, I'm hoping he gets to six. Maybe he gets to six two when he gets bigger. But uh, you know, he's been, you know, since he was a little, you know, first grade, he's been pretty much playing with the older kids, and you know, he plays up a year usually on travel teams. But eventually, that you know, that'll even out. He'll play more at his grade level. It's, it's, it's a tough sport, as you know. It, it's really tough. Yeah, it, it's. Uh, I was always tall, so I, I was always forced to play with older kids, which, of course, helped a lot. You know, helps helps you develop your skills and, uh, you know, makes you a little tougher playing against the older kids too. But uh, and he's really come along. His, his, his ball handling has gotten good, and he's got a really nice shot, and it's consistent. He repeats it all the time. So, um, you know, I guess uh, the coaching must must be must be helping, but. Um, <laughs> He seems really dedicated to it, and and that's really you know in a in an era where it seems like kids uh, uh, are, are more apt to play uh, e games on on the video games. Uh, it's it's nice to see uh, somebody actually doing something physical. Yeah, you know he he puts the work and he he works very hard. I mean we probably get we're fortunate fortunate to get into a gym by us where there's like a half court basketball court to really work out. And, we're probably in there five, six days a week. We, we try to get up 2,500, 3,000 shots every week, you know, besides working on ball handling and other stuff. And uh, he, he puts the time in. He works hard, and he knows you work hard. If you want to play, do you want to sit on the bench, or do you want to play in games? And, you know, let him do his video games. Or let him go and, you know, to YouTube and TikTok is the big thing. And I don't have a problem with that, you know, because he puts the work in. Um, like we're heading to Pennsylvania this weekend for a tournament, and you know he, he's fortunate enough to play a lot in these tournaments and be a you know good part of the team because of the work he puts in. But you, you got to keep on working. He knows that. Um, you know you got to try to be as good as you can be. And I told him if you could be a really good shooter or a really good ball handler, there'll be a spot on you for any team. No, that that's absolutely the truth. I mean, listen, though, Rick Pitino said he's going to make Iona the Gonzaga of the East. So I heard that. I mean, there you go. Yeah, he's, you know, he, he enjoys it. He has fun. You know, I I push him, so you know, I do and can be tough on him. But he he's mentally very very strong, and he and he mentally knows how to play the game real well. And he plays so hard. You know, the best compliment I ever got from a um a you know a High school coach that seen him play says he's the first kid diving on the floor for a loose ball. Besides being a real strong player, he's the hardest worker on the court. So, you know, we put that together, hard work, and we'll see where where it gets us. But, uh, you know, the stuff on Twitter, a good friend of mine, a good big high school coach in the city, kind of tells me you gotta get, you gotta post stuff on these kids when they're young, you just put stuff out there, get a name, you know, it, it, and these high school programs really push these kids getting Instagram, Twitter, putting videos out, highlights, really selling yourself on social media is actually, you know, told to do that nowadays. And so that's probably one of the reasons I kind of push stuff, stuff out there is, you know, they never know who's watching. No, that is true, but uh, it's been kind of cool to watch him develop and, and uh, like I said, get bigger and get stronger, and, and, and his ball handling has really gotten better, and uh, his shot is really good. It, it's uh, The one thing that younger kids always seem to have trouble with is is getting a consistent shot where their elbow 
is in the right place and and it's uh the same shot over and over again and, and he's really doing well so yeah that's that's what we talk about all the time is uh is repeating your shot repeating your motion and he was lucky when he he was always strong that I kind of always taught him how to shoot one-handed. I really never let him shoot three-pointers until about a year ago until he could consistently shoot it with his guide hand on the side. and not. He never really shot the ball two-handed. So I've had that advantage with him. And really, you know, we, we're very technical. We work out on his form, on his shot, watch a lot of video. So, you know, it, he is finally starting to repeat his form, which has – taken him to another level shooting wide in the uh in the last six months or so. So it's good to see. And he could shoot off the dribble well, which is one thing I could never do when I played. Is I could just catch and shoot and I struggled off the dribble. So I really, really forced him to work his shot off the dribble. If you can create your own shot in this game, you could play. If you can't, you got no shot. This is true. Uh, talking about um <laughs> where you got no shot sometimes in the game. Uh, how did you get into horse racing? You know, it, it's actually a pretty funny story. I never really went to the track when I was younger. You know, uh, we, with a mutual friend of ours, a guy named, you know, I don't, you probably know, I'll probably say his name is Jack Shelley. Oh. And uh, he's good friends with my father. and He owns horses. And my dad was sneaking into Aqueduct when he was 12 years old. He lived in, grew up in Ozone Park, and him and his friends would hop the fence and sneak in. And so my dad and my grandfather always went to the track, but I never did. I'd go to Belmont here and there, big races. If Mr. Shelley had a horse, I'd go there. Really had no interest. I was, you know, I just wanted to play basketball when I was a kid, and that's all I did. Went to the park, played basketball, and, uh, and that's it. So... I went up to college. I went up to school in, in New Hampshire, played uh, Hennepin, New Hampshire. It was Division Three school. And every year, if you uh, you played in college for a little, right? Mm-hmm. When when we were done at the end of the season, there would always be pickup games or you're kind of training, not, not like they do nowadays, but when the spring came, you were in the gym, pickup games. We would go to the park. We would go into Boston on a Saturday and play pickup, a couple of kids on the team. So, uh, but I always liked the casino, but never the horses. And then senior year season ended, and I had nothing to do. You know, you, you're, you're shut down. You're not training for the next year. And a friend of mine that liked to gamble, we go, we would go to Foxwood sometimes. Um, cause when you played basketball or sports, you, you were it was six days a week practice, so you really had no off days, and you were too tired on the next day. So, um, and it was usually like a Monday we were off anyway. We never had the weekends off. So we had nothing to do. So we we saw in the paper, you know, we saw something Rockingham Park. So this is in the middle of, um, it was the early February. And we took a ride into uh, Rockingham Park. And we were just there. And we I just wanted some action. And I'll never forget. I want to say it actually might have been the last week of uh, January, first week of February. There was a horse running, knew nothing, didn't even know how to read the race. It was Dr. J. Joe Aquilina trained him, if you remember that horse. Mm-hmm. Sure he spent $10 on him. He won, paid like $12, $11, whatever it was. That was a Paranac horse. 
Yeah, yeah, way back, way back. This had to be in the mid-90s. So, you know, won a couple of dollars. The next weekend, I um, I literally got there at 12 in the afternoon, and I stayed to 12 midnight, not really knowing what I was doing. It was like $60, and I just bet all day, up and down, up and down. I think I won 20-something dollars. I was like, wow, this is interesting. So me and my friend needed to go to Rockingham Park and we're betting simulcasting like three days a week. We would go, bet, come home, and watch Harvey Pack on the sports channel and watch the recaps because back then there was like no internet betting. You weren't watching it on your computer. And that's how I got hooked. I came home, started going to Belmont, and, you know, it was an expensive lesson because I, I, I lost quite a bit because I had no idea what I was doing until I got introduced to a professional gambler out of Philly and he used to winter in Gulfstream to a mutual friend. And I stayed with him one weekend in Philadelphia and he taught me how to read the Ragavan sheets. And then I went down to Florida and I stayed with him a week in Florida when I was working, I took vacation and, and there's an older guy named PJ and he, and he bet for a living. And he basically taught me, how to read the, the Ragazin sheets and taught me how to like bet in a way and how to maximize your profit. And that's how I really started learning. And then one thing led to another and, you know, I have addictive personality. So I just started, I, I don't bet sports at all. I, I bet nothing else but the horses, you know, and for me, it's power mutual. You put the work in. It's my opinion versus yours. The track gets their cut. I understand the whole takeout, but the bottom line is we de- we determine the odds of betters, and it's my opinion versus yours, and who's right. And you know, ever since then, I've been you know at Belmont Park, Aqueduct, Saratoga, um, you name it. You know, I've probably been going now on you know, 20, 25 years hitting the track. I even I even put the late pick for him before I walked into church when I got married with my wife. I was betting the late pick four before I, did, I got married. Did it hit? Oh, no, I think I lost. <laughs> <laughs> well, it would have been a better story if it hit, you know, yeah. the ticket. But <laughs> we'll I mean, on. like most horse players, I, you, know, I, you know, most people don't admit they, they don't win. A lot of these guys on Twitter putting stuff out, you know, there's a lot of losing tickets out there. And uh, I'm lucky if I win two or three days a month. But it's those days when I have good opinions, if I really catch it right, you know, I'm up for the month on, on two good days. And, you know, I, I, I got my ass kicked the first couple of years betting the horses until I really learned more. And it's not like I win every year. But over the last six years, I've had more profitable years than losing years. But it's it's a grind. It's a lot of work. It's hours of work a day just hoping that you got a profit. I think the mental aspect, uh, the the downside when the thing that's, that's the most difficult for me is, is when you have a race figured right and something happens and it screws it up like some 99 to 1 shot goes out there and, and does some, you know, horse had never shown speed in his life, goes out and you know, duels your your, your your horse who you look like it was going to be loose on the lead into defeat or, or just, uh, you know, the rider makes a mistake of some sort. Or, you know, you have a late uh, a late 
surface change and uh, you know that that those are the, the things that are out of your control sometimes are the things i think that make you the the, the craziest and when you're betting horse races yeah you know i say it to a good friend of mine that that's just, we could handicap everything right we could be right for for example two weeks ago when the stake race at aqueduct um the run on rob atras one now you could handicap it right and there, there were two speed horses the horse that got the lead was the speed of the speed, but there was one other horse that would have put pressure on him. That other horse missed the break. The two horse got the easy lead, and the race was over. And you could handicap all you want, but when the gates open, one horse got one speed horse got left, the other wins. It changes the whole dynamic. Every everything you handicap goes out the window because what you envisioned on paper didn't happen because a horse stumbled out of the gate. And it's you know it's frustrating. There's nothing you can do. It's, it's part of the game. They're animals. You know, yeah. They wake up on the wrong side of the bed like humans. You don't know how they're going to feel no. that exact day. No doubt. Uh, when I was working for Alan Jerkins in Saratoga, we had a horse named Classy Mirage, who was a really, really good horse. But uh, we were in a race against a horse named Inside Information, who, who was a better horse. And uh, Inside Information um, stumbled terribly at the start. I mean, Mike Smith, how he stayed on, I don't even know. And we wound up, you know, beating her in that race. But it wasn't as though we were just beating her because we were a better horse. The fact of the matter was that the the stumble cost her maybe four or five lengths. It was that bad. And, and uh, you know, we lost her. She lost by two. So, you know, sometimes things happen in races uh, or, or even a late scratch. Um, uh, I was talking to someone about this as not a late scratch, but about the 85 Derby. And it was funny because uh, on Steve Bick's show the other day, the MIG was talking about Eternal Prince and uh, how he had run in the, I believe, the wood two weeks before the Derby, and, and he was given instructions to, to, you know, after the race to gallop him out strong. <laughs> so, um, you know, which is kind of odd compared to what you know people do now, where they hardly do anything with the horses trying to get to the Kentucky Derby. But uh, the point was, Spendabuck, who was the favorite or, or second choice in that race. Uh, I think maybe Keith's crown might have been a favorite. He was a dead one-run speed horse, and Eternal Prince was a dead one-run speed horse. And of course, they looked like they were going to hook up in the race. And Eternal Prince, who had post two, broke terrible. And it was a big field. And of course, you know what happens in the Derby when you break bad. You know, you're behind a wall of horses, and Spend a Buck sped off to the lead, and he went fast fractions. I mean, it wasn't like he went out there and stole the race. He went 22, 45, 109, and change, and and, and basically maintained a five-length lead the whole, the whole race. And, and maybe Eternal Prince wouldn't have even been fast enough to, to get to him. Uh, I don't know. We don't know that. But but the, the whole race changed. The dynamics changed. Uh, and, I mean, you're talking, you know, the Derby is essentially the biggest race of the year in this country. And uh, because one horse stumbled out of the gate, you know, it, it might have changed the, the history of, of, of racing in, in, in some ways. Yeah, I mean, there's so many things that can go wrong in a race uh, to the point of jockey intention. I mean, there's so many different things. And we all like to get on jockeys and blame them for this and that, and I'm guilty of that as anybody. But, you know, sometimes you don't know the instructions or, or what they're told or, or what the trainer wants them to do. So, I mean, it gets frustrating, especially in New York, because so many riders just, you know, they seem intent. Whoever gets the lead, everybody else wants to just, you know, just wait and and stalk. And 
and nobody wants to go to the league. They're so scared of getting into a duel. So and there's so many things that can go wrong in a race, and at the end of the day, we're just making educated guesses on what they think they're going to do, and we have the information in front of us. But, you know, it's just so many things out there that, that can screw up a race, and you can handicap it perfect. And like you said, one thing goes wrong, and there goes your score. And it could happen sometimes the other way. Sometimes you get lucky. You know, sometimes, you know, a horse you thought was going to close ends up breaking on top and wires the field. And, you know, like, oh, I had the winner, and I wasn't even close to the reason why he was winning. Yeah, that's, it's, uh, that's so true. And, and we were talking about disqualifications and uh, the second at the fairgrounds last Saturday, there was, I mean, in, in my eyes and the eyes of most people who saw it was a pretty egregious takedown by the stewards in uh, at the fairgrounds. And, I mean, I didn't bet the race, but I'd have been just, like, livid if they had taken that horse down because it really didn't affect the race at all. The winner was the best horse. He really didn't do that much. And, and to have, um, you know, the, the, the result of a race changed because... Of, of the whims of, of you know the guys standing in the steward's booth that 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 really makes me crazy and I understand how that that really makes people as crazy as anything and I know Naira had a uh, a real issue a couple of years ago uh, it kind of started at Belmont and, and and went into Saratoga with a couple of actual you know like stake races where the calls just seemed to be getting more and more inconsistent and uh, it was frustrating to the point where I know a lot of guys were like you know I, I used to I used to watch a race and and, and have a 75 85 95 percent chance of, of of figuring out that that's going to be a takedown or that's not going to be a takedown because now it's a coin flip you just have no idea that they take down horses uh you know with no seeming you know the inconsistency at, at the same track is is, is really maddening and not not just Naira Naira actually hasn't had uh, you know, it's been a while since they've had a couple of bad ones, but that was a really bad call at um, at the fairgrounds, and and there's been some you know some bad calls at, at Tampa, and, and of course, I well, mean, Tampa, they, Tampa, they don't even look. I mean, the inquiry goes on for literally 20 seconds, and, and, and some of these inquiries are literally 20 seconds at Tampa, and, and that's it, and and that's the one track where they take where they hardly take anything down at Tampa, and. That, that's a frustrating, frustrating track to bet from that. And, and they don't even look. They barely look at it. Where, you know, it's tough about inquiries because there is no written rule. It's not black and white. It, at the end of the day, it's an opinion of whether you think the horse should have came down or not, and it's in the eye of the beholder. So, you know, that's the problem. You're never going to get a perfect ruling because unless you're basically just saying, Takedowns could only happen if this happens or that happens. It, it, it comes down to what that person thinks in their view. And, and, you know, you go on Twitter half the time. Every takedown's is 50-50. I, I get it. It's because certain people bet certain horses. But, you know, that's just human element. And it's like an umpire in baseball or a ref in basketball or football. You know, they can make the wrong call. They just see it differently. They see a travel. Well, they didn't see the travel, you know. And that's kind of how stewards are. I actually think it's tougher because, you know, with a travel, you take three steps. Well, in the NBA now, it's five steps, and it's a travel. But 
take down horse racing, some of this stuff is questionable. I mean, what do you do with herding? I mean, do you, they allow herding, but if they actually bump the horse, probably gets taken down. If they herd and they don't touch him and they just force him out, they're not taking it down. It, it's it's tough because, like you said, you, you want consistency. And I, I just... Uh... I just want to see less takedowns, but I think that, you know, it's it's a multifaceted issue in that you have to, to make sure the jockeys uh, don't take advantage of the situation. So just saying, well, okay, I want, to, I want to see fewer takedowns. I want only, you know, really egregious fouls to be taken down. doesn't mean that you can just not penalize the jockeys or at the very least let them know that you're watching. And I think that that's part of the issue. One of the issues is that we deal with in California with this new, you know, whip rule, um, which, you know, has it, just been uh, the way it's been implemented is really the issue more than anything. In that it just was, it's arbitrary. It, it doesn't really, um, uh, it it doesn't really make a lot of sense. The jockeys really weren't allowed to have any input. And now they just, you know, discovered, oh, they have these really big purse races where the jockeys might make forty or fifty thousand dollars. So yeah, our, our five hundred dollar penalty isn't really going to be a deterrent. <laughs> and it's it's like, um, you know, you can't just let them herd to 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 the extent that they they do in some jurisdictions. But by the same token, we don't want you know we don't want numbers taken down quite as much. I, I would just feel better about letting the results stand, and and penalizing the jockeys and 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 making the um, you know, one strike, two strike, three strikes where where the penalties really increase, uh, especially if it if it's a uh, something that that can be considered uh, you know endangering someone else as, as well because you know there there are you know live animals and live people on those horses and and decisions and. And uh, you know, maneuvers that they make do, you know, really impact the person's life. So it's not, uh, it shouldn't be taken lightly. But uh, I'm more to the, the 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 lack of DQs. You know, I'd rather see fewer DQs uh, and and stronger penalties. And you know, one thing they should do instead of the fines, because fines for top riders, it really doesn't hurt them in the pocket. Really, give them days and don't let them appeal it. Because they just appeal it, appeal it, appeal it, and then they end up, you know, let me take the days uh, last weekend at Aqueduct or opening weekend at Belmont, but I'm allowed to ride steak days. They'll let me ride on stakes day, so I'm going to miss a Wednesday and Thursday and Friday card. Um, you know, they shouldn't be allowed to hold off on their, you know, appeal. You get suspended. You, get, you should basically, within 10 days, you have a hearing. And then if they lose, they take it right away. They can't keep on putting it off. And don't let them ride stake races. Don't make exceptions they can ride on a Saturday or Sunday. You, you really can't tell them that they can't appeal it because they just go to court and get an injunction. Which, well, no, appeal it, but do it which quick. Which is what they the used to do. Which is, quick. You know, that, that's what the, the, they used to do is that they would just go and get an injunction, and then it got to be real, you know, a mess. And um, I, I'm with you, though, like, uh, like some of these – you know, I mean, the, what the jockeys used to do when December was more of a quiet month um, than it is now, uh, they used to get days, regardless of the time of the year, and just appeal it and appeal it and appeal it and appeal it and get a lawyer to keep pushing it off. And then, 
uh, comes to December, they drop it and go on vacation. Um, and so they don't really do that as much as as, as they used to. But um, but I, I get what you're saying, like you said. Um, and I think one of the reasons that they did the stakes days to allow them to ride in the stakes was because it was punishing the owners and trainers as well. Um, when people to walk up and purchase a ticket and walk in, you know, I'm not sure how they're even going to do it. I mean, I guess their argument's going to be, it's not like you have a seat, like at a stadium where you sit in a seat and they know where you're social distance. It's, you know, you can kind of go in there and go wherever. I mean, Belmont, there's so much outdoor space, especially in the grandstand, you in the backyard. You, you can be totally socially distanced at Belmont. It's so big. I mean, in fact, not many people stay inside the clubhouse. Most of them are outside watching. But I just don't think they're in any rush, and I think it's easy. And then you have, you know, you can tell me the construction. The construction, that's, there's no difference. If there was no COVID, the construction would not be an issue at all with the fans. There's plenty of parking there. It's, it's off. It's off to the side in a way. It really doesn't affect you at all going to Belmont. And that construction thing is just a, an excuse they want to use. But in all honesty, I don't know how, that, how you can fathom that being an issue. When they were digging it out before COVID, we were allowed there. When they started the first groundbreaking, we were allowed to go in there. That wasn't an excuse. But... I just, you know, now the vaccination site, they could use that as an excuse. But I, I, I don't think, I think the issue for them is going to be once you open Saratoga, which I think they will, then you kind of have to open Belmont for the fall, and you kind of have to open Aqueduct in, in the winter. You're almost forced to once you open one track up, you know, to open the other. And what do they do at Saratoga this year? Do they eliminate picnic tables? Do they, I mean, just have one picnic table 10 feet apart. I, um, I mean, Saratoga is a bigger issue of the seating and the spacing. It's not as big as Belmont, and you get more people. Uh, how are they going to do that there? And, you know, that, that'll be interesting, how Saratoga uh, lets fans back in. Yeah, it, it'll be, well, the litmus test will be uh, if there's a horse going for the Triple Crown. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we'll see how, how things open up. Uh, for Belmont Day, if, if if we have a horse going for that, and uh, apparently, um, um, you know that that'll be a different, uh, a cer- certainly a different look for sure um, than you know previous Belmont Day. But but I would have to believe that they would be doing something uh, to let some people in some way and just uh, sell tickets. I guess the, in the listening to Darren Rogers this morning, he was saying that. The Derby is kind of like an all-inclusive ticket this year, where they're gonna, you're gonna pay the for the ticket, and, and then uh, you're gonna have food and drinks and everything included, um, because I guess they don't want lines. Though I'm not sure how you wouldn't have to stand in line to get that, eat you know the food and drinks too. But uh, but it's it's you know it's a it's a different world, and and certainly we're we're uh, di- different places are doing it differently. That that's that's for for sure, and. Uh, I mean, I think I read, I heard somewhere, was it Shea Stadium or Yankee Stadium? One of these major stadiums is going cashless. 
for all, you know, any kind of food or drinks or anything at the stadium. It's basically going to be cashless on an app. Right. You know, I could see that as a way of going. A lot of these places now is they they they'd uh, rather they'd rather do that now, anyways. Yeah. I mean that make that's so much easier to keep track of their inventories. It's so much easier to yep. you know to keep track of, uh, um, you know, the vendors uh, and I mean that that's something that's that's just that's going to happen. I mean, uh, you know, you look at just just the the, the highway tolls. Uh, a lot of them have gone where they're you have to have a, an easy pass um, to pay, or they're doing the pay by plate, or they they don't mm-hmm. they just don't want the the cash to be uh, handled, and and it's 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 a it's a good excuse to get rid of it. Really, I mean, it's just a it's a hassle at this point for them. Everything's electronic, and, and it's just uh, that's that's the way that, that's the way it's going to go. And I mean, just just look at the way people bet. I mean, how much. Um, how much of the handle? What percentage of the handle now is is bet through ADWs? Like virtually all of it. I mean, they make it they make it so easy now to put money in your account. <laughs> yeah. Back in the old days, you had to go to OTB, deposit money, or go to the track and make bets. Now you can go right on your app, transfer it from your bank, credit card, PayPal. I mean, it's 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 quite easy nowadays to uh, just fund your account and and start. And the and the card the cards don't reject them anymore too. I remember that was an issue. Uh, yep. You know, maybe fifteen years ago, uh, you'd try to put money on an account, and if it was a quote unquote gambling site, a lot of the banks would reject it. They wouldn't they wouldn't mm-hmm. let you fund your account. It made it real hard. And um, yeah, I remember the old OTB telephone accounts. <laughs> Call up. You had a mm-hmm. password, and <laughs> yep. you'd be betting with letters. <laughs> so ridiculous. I remember you said that John Street OTV down in in, uh, in Manhattan. Go put it in, put money in your phone account. You know, calling the bets because you got track prices if you called in on the phone as opposed to betting it in cash and OTV. You'd be outside the OTV calling in the bets so you get track odds. <laughs> Before, you know, you had ADWs and, and anything at, uh, and um, you went to the OTVs. Do you remember when the OTBs had separate pools for like the Kentucky Derby and and uh, like races like the Arlington Million? I, I don't remember that. I do remember going to Rockingham for one of. For, I was up there one year for the Derby, and I remember going to Rockingham and betting in a separate pool through Rockingham Park as opposed to the regular Kentucky Derby pool. I remember going there and seeing different odds for the Derby if you bet at Rockingham as opposed to the odds on track, you know, that you saw on TV. Yeah, I, I was uh, unfortunately old enough to remember that when when they had separate pools. And you would get, uh, of course, like the New York horses would always be overbet in New York and the, the California horses would always be overbet in California. And it, it, depending on, on where you bet, I remember I was, you know, in my teens and I thinking, man, if I had a guy out there <laughs> in California and I could call him up and, and get down on the New York horses there, he could get down on the, the California horses here, you know, because we're going to get better odds than, than we're actually getting. <clears throat> it's crazy to think that it wasn't that long ago. I mean, now you can bet, like, virtually anything on your phone and watch the race live. And, and it's uh, it's so funny when I hear uh, some people in, in, in the kind of newcomers to racing say that racing is behind the times i'm thinking man you you have no idea what, you have no idea what you missed when you go to a racetrack 
and you had the nine races in front of you and that was it. There was no mother. There was no simulcasting of anything. Um, you know, you had nine races and 30 minutes between races and that was, that was the day at the races. That was how it went. And, uh, you know, New York City OTB or actually, you know, New York OTBs kind of started to bring uh, a little bit of a different dynamic because they would cover different tracks. You know, so when you went to an OTB versus going to a track, you, there would be other tracks that you could bet on. Though I think most of my childhood, when a New York track was running, they couldn't take yep. another track. Especially at night. They couldn't run. When Hornets was running at night, yeah, no they couldn't show any thoroughbred. Right. And the, the Finger Lakes was always the big uh, Monday, Tuesday, or Tuesday, because that was when Naira used to run. I, I was talking about this with Bobby Newman uh, on um, on the HRN show a couple of weeks ago about it wasn't that long ago that Gulfstream was a six-day-a-week uh, meet in the winter, and it, New York was a six-days-a-week a, a um, year-round. New York, I, I got a program. I found a program the other day from 1984 from Saratoga. And it was really interesting to look back, and and uh, there, there's actually a couple trainers that are still training. Mark Cassie had one, and he must he must have been really young um, when uh, this was 19 uh, Friday, August 24th, 1984. Um, and you know, you you look. I said some of the interesting things that that maybe interest me and don't interest other people is. The purses for the claiming per, 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 horses were really close to what the purses for the uh, the maidens and allowance races. Like the first race of the day was a six furlong race for three year old fillies. It was a claiming twenty five, and the purse was fourteen thousand. Um, and the uh, the fourth race of the day was a maiden two year old maiden special weight, and the purse was eighteen thousand. So it was, you know, not a, a, a big deal. Um, but ra- racing was so great. Then. I mean, just looking at the, the card, right? All right, so they had a nine-horse field in a, in a um, three-year-old Philly claiming race for the first. The second race was a mile and an eighth. Ten, uh, 11 horses, 10, uh, it was an entry. Shifty Sheik and Mitch, Mitch, Mr. Badger were, were the, uh, the entry, Oscar Barrera. Uh, that race was a three-and-up um a fifty thousand claimer, uh, with like I said, going two turns with with eleven horses in it. The third race was a uh, a seventy five thousand dollar claimer, going seven eighths, uh, eight horse, nine horses in an eight horse field, or eight eight betting interest. Uh, Oscar again had had a uh, um, Hollywood Henderson and Maru were uh, were coupled. The fifth race was a two year old maiden race, going five eighths. Um, 12 horses, two entries, $18,000 purse going five A's. Uh, the, f- the fifth race was mile three sixteenths, 100 claimers. Uh, the 100 claimers purse was, was 27000 That was a 10-horse field. Um, the sixth race was, was a jump race, actually, uh, the New York Turf Jump race stuff. in the middle of the card. Yeah, in the sixth race, Jonathan Shepard had a three-horse entry. He scratched one of them. Uh, a horse, a famous horse, actually one of the one of the greatest uh, jumpers ever. Uh, a horse named Flatterer, uh, with Jerry Fishback, who I'm, I'm almost positive won. Uh, that race was forty thousand dollars added at the at that time. The seventh race was a a mile and a uh, an eighth on the turf. Um, 
it was a New York bred, uh, two other than, and the purse was twenty seven five, and that was a uh, a thirteen horse race with a three horse entry for Sue Sedlicek. Um, the eighth race, which was uh, the feature, was a, a, a never uh, a three other than, going six furlongs for fillies and mares. Uh, the eight horse race, and that was a twenty three thousand dollar purse. Um, and then the, the final race was Maiden Phillies um, going six and a half, three and up, with a 12-horse field, and that was an $18,000 purse as well. And uh, Jimmy Toner had one in there, Bobby Reinecker, <clears throat> Steve Demore Sr. Uh, it's just funny, you know, reading some of the, you know, the old trainers and old old jockeys and and, and the crazy thing back then is Finger Rakes was running back then, right? Mm-hmm. Sure. You had Rockingham Park running in the summer. And you might know with the track in Vermont, was that racetrack? Uh, Green Mountain. No, Green Mountain was, uh, I think they closed for thoroughbreds before the 80s. So if you had Rockingham drawing horses, you had Finger Rakes, you know, potentially drawing horses, and you're still running at Monmouth. You had more competition back then in bigger fields than you do nowadays, and they have field sizes half as big. Oh, no doubt, no doubt. Um, but it was it was interesting to see. Uh, there's there was one page that has New York racing dates, 1984. Um, <clears throat> Aqueduct ran from January 1st to May 7th, 110 days. Belmont. Wow. Belmont ran, uh, started on Wednesday. Aqueduct closed on a Monday, and, and Belmont started on a Wednesday. <laughs> they ran 72 days from May 9th to July 30th. Saratoga <laughs> ran 24 days, August 1st to uh, August 27th. Then back to Belmont for the fall championship meet, August 29th to October 22nd. That's 48 days. And Aqueduct ran from uh, Wednesday, October 24th, to Monday, December 31st, which is 60 days. That's a total of 314 days. <laughs> so they raced 314 days out of 365. Uh, what are they racing now, about 200? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't even know that they do 200 now. The Saratoga's down to five days, and and uh, you know Aqueduct currently is running, um, three, days. running three days. I mean, you're talking. There was 51 dark days, <laughs> a year, <laughs> 51. And every time, and they go, they take a week off now. Whenever they go from meet to meet, right? And uh, you know, it's it's not like a criticism of, of anything. It's just showing how how things have changed. And yes, that was 1984. I mean, it's not like it was, uh, uh, you know, 2014. It was it was a long time ago, but. But uh, you know, sometimes you know you feel like you're a little curmudgeonly when when you're saying, "Oh God, I wish I wish uh, <laughs> you know things were like they used to be." But it was such a great game, and just just looking over these fields and the depth of the fields, there was no um, the only in that in that on that you know one day of racing. Of course, we're just looking at you know one random day of racing. Uh, there was no. Uh, odds on favorites there was uh, uh except for flatterer of course who was three to five but um it, it was just a, a you know you didn't see trainers with nine in um 
when, when you look at the, the leading trainers, now remember, this is August 24th, so the meet was about three quarters over. Jonathan Shepard was the leading trainer with eight wins. Gaspar Moshera was second with seven. Uh, Vinny Blanks, shipping from Suffolk or uh, New England, was, was third with five wins. Tim John Hurtler, P.G. Johnson had five. Uh, Louis Barrera, Woody Stevens, uh, Laz Barrera, and Mac Miller all had four. Um, so, you know, it's and, and, and interestingly enough, the guys from that group, uh, you know, you would think Mac Miller and Woody Stevens and P.G. Johnson, uh, they won, you know, again, small sample, but they were winning at 17, 16, and 12% for the meet. And nowadays we'd be calling these guys, well, geez, this guy's having a terrible meet. Back then he was in the top 10 in the standings. Um, you know, when you look at the jocks race, all right, Eddie Maple was the leading jockey at the time. I'm sure Cordero actually won the meet. But Maple had 17 wins. Cordero had 16. Wesley Ward, as a bug boy, had 15. John Luke Samine had 13. Um, John Vel- uh, George Velasquez had 13. John Cougay had 13. Robbie Davis had 11. Walter Guerra and Don Macbeth both had 10. So it's not as though there was, uh, you know, the Ortiz brothers and, and Castellano and, uh, uh, you know, three or four guys winning all the races. It, it was spread out. And and I think that's, you know, something that it's probably impossible to get back nowadays. But but when we talk about, you know, the old days and, and, and how things were just, you know, better, uh, that that's what we're talking about, you know, Have, having a, a, a great card of racing like that, um, no cheap claimers, no condition claimers, no maiden claimers. I mean, there's no track in America that, that could run on a, on a random Friday, could run a, a card without maiden claimers or condition claimers. Just it just wouldn't happen. Well, I, I remember in the state when you used to get, you know, you used to get the Met Mile. It was a ten horse field, nine or ten horse field every every day. It was on a memorial every year. It was on Memorial Day, and you used to get a full field, shipping in from out of town. Nowadays, sometimes some years you get five, six horses in the net mile. I mean, even all the stake races at Belmont. Now you got, you got stake races, you get four or five horse fields. I remember we used to go, we used to be a full field, eight, nine horses in, in every stake race on the dirt. Even the turf now, it's embarrassing. Like some of these stake races, there's six horse fields and Chad Brown has two or three horses. And it, it's, they're just not bettable. But people bet a lot of money into them, and, and, and the, the handles keep on storing. So, you know, they don't, you know, there's really no need to change it for what they're doing. Nothing's going to change. They're not, they don't care about the betters. But they just can't hustle enough horsemen. I mean, I, I think owners, I think trainers are scared. You would know better than me on this. Is they're scared because their percentage. They're scared to have their percentage drop. I, I knew one trainer. Trained for Zilla, I'm not going to name the name, but you know, I had a friend. I know a good friend that had a small piece, and they got rid of this trainer. And he said they basically told him, "You're winning at like 12 percent." He goes, "We can't sell you to potential clients on a 12 percent trainer. You know, we got to get rid of you." That's what we switched. We need our trainers 15 percent or higher, so we can attract new clients. And I think trainers are just scared to run horses in spots. You know. Nobody was better than Alan Jerkins at putting a horse in any spot, whether, you know, over his head or not. You know, he, he, he wasn't scared to 
to, to put a horse in a, in a state race or in a tough spot. But, you know, he didn't care about his percentage. Well, he, I don't want to put words and say he didn't, but the I, old school I, I, I trainers can... that have old school owners, they don't, they don't care. They're going to run them can... where they think, you know, they can compete. I guarantee you he had no idea what his percentage was ever. What? I can guarantee you he never had any idea of what his percentage was ever. No one no one actually cared back then. It wasn't, you know, even back then it it wasn't it wasn't percentage really wasn't a thing. You know, the leading trainer was the guy who won the most races. And the, the the best way to win the most races is to run more, you know, run the most horses. But uh win percentage is it's such a flawed statistic. It it's like uh it's like wins for pitchers in baseball in that uh, a guy that, that takes horses and consistently runs them, undervalues them, is going to win a lot of races and get his win percentage up. But that doesn't really mean he's doing a good job. It just means that he's he's taking advantage of the situation, which I guess people could say, well, that's that's, you know, that's a that's a good thing. And obviously get some horses and or, or you see guys that run a lot of horses out of town. Uh, I know a couple of Naira chainers who have sent horses to Finger Lakes and run them down their throats up there. And in the overall percentage, it looks, you know, th- those wins, if they go, uh, you know, 13 for 22 up there or whatever, well, that makes everything else look better, even though there are a bunch of, uh, you know, cheap races that the owner might have lost money having to ship up there to run and, and stay up there. And, you know, because you're running for, you know, the paltry purses they run up there. But uh, it, it's never, it, it's, you know, we 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 depend on a lot of statistics in this business that just aren't really that valid statistically. And you know, you talk about a guy, oh, this guy's went twenty three percent. It's like, look at his horses. <laughs> he should win twenty three. He should he should probably should win thirty five percent. He's winning twenty three percent. And and I know some of the bigger trainers complain because they say, well, you know, we run two in a race, we can only win with one. So like that 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 hurts our percentage. Well, you know, like th- this was an argument a trainer made to me, a big trainer made to me one time about drug positives and he said to me well it, it's unfair to the big trainers and i said well why because the, the rule proposal was was kind of a um uh, something like a driver's license where uh, you would accumulate points and 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 certain um offenses would be you know worse than others obviously if you had a class two or would be worse than a class three and uh, you know, just like speeding, like if you get a, a, a you know, failure, you know, what do you have a, a failure to signal is, is not as bad as speeding. It's not as bad as like reckless driving, which is not as bad as DUI. And you get, you know, points based upon the severity of it. Well, the whole point was that, you know, there should be an accumulation of points. And once you reach a certain number, then the penalty should increase or, or grow larger because, uh, you know, it's it's not good for the business and the game and the sport and, and and you know the whole outlook to have the same names continue to keep getting issues. And, and the trainer said to me, uh, "Well, you know, we we run a lot more horses, so we have a lot more chances to get um, you know positive." And I, I I smiled and I said, "Dude, is was there someone to put a gun to your head that told you to take all those extra horses?" I said, "You know, you're taking a bigger risk, but." You're doing this on your own volition. You're also making a lot more money. So, you know, with that comes more risk, and that's that's part of the deal. Like, like you shouldn't get a, a, a free pass because, you, you, you know, oh, well, I run 500 horses a year, and this guy only runs 75 horses a year. 
I mean, a positive is a positive is a positive is a positive. Just because, you know, your, your percentage of opportunities to get a positive or higher, it doesn't matter. You're supposed to get zero positives. You know, that's that's the standard zero. It's it's not like, uh, you know, well, it's okay to get a couple because, you know, mistakes are made. Well, how come some of us, you know, I mean, I went through my entire career and I think I had two positives. One was one was uh, probably wasn't even a positive. The state screwed up the testing and the lab was screwed up uh, for uh, naproxen. And they had, you know, some big, they had like 90 horses come positive in a week. And I was like, God, you guys got a real issue with your test. And they didn't take the purse. They didn't do anything. They just fined me because, <laughs> I, you know, it was easier for me just to take the fine than, than go through the process of, getting a lawyer and fighting it which which is probably what i should have done you know now i look back because the truth of the matter was i didn't really do anything wrong we were well within the limit um i mean we we stopped like four or five days before and i mean it, the problem was certainly was with the lab at the time um but uh you know grand motions had one positive uh, i think chris clements had one positive shug mcgee's had like two positives so it's not as though um every trainer has 40 positives and hey you know we push the envelope and we get closed and and the funny thing about a lot of the positives is they're really almost insignificant or insignificant numbers too i mean they're just not like the, the performance enhancing capabilities of 11 nanograms of a substance versus six nanograms of substance i'm not a chemist but i i have a hard time believing that it, it makes any difference because you don't see the difference you really don't see the difference uh, I mean, if I give my horse butte today, three days from now, he, any fill that was there is back. It, it doesn't last that long. It's like taking an aspirin today and, and being tested for it five days from now. That, that aspirin doesn't have any more effect than you. But, um, you know, the, the tests, uh, the, the limits have been arbitrary in a lot of ways. I mean, the system has not been a good system. And, and I was hoping that, you know, like a, a naive fool sometimes that I am, that we would come up with a system that was 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 really good, um, you know, a better system, better rules. And that was always the thing. I, I got in a, a, a kind of a tiff one time at a commission meeting with um, over this one guy kept saying, well, we need stricter rules. We need harsher rules. And I said, like, listen, buddy, your testing sucks, okay? So, so like, you, you don't need – we don't need stricter rules or harsher rules. We need better rules. I go – Part of your your mission is to protect the people that are trying to follow the rules and make sure that when they do follow the rules that they don't get you know thrown under the bus, which which is something that that's happened in uh, various times. But um, you know, like again, this is about the fifteenth time I've, I've brought this up, but the the whole whip regulation in California and and just the way the thing has been. Uh, handled it's just so it's so poorly handled that the the guild was not a, a big part of of the of the whole process and they should have been and it should have been done you know behind closed doors where people can speak freely not out in some public forum and then you know the commissioners could have used that information um to to you know make their decision though you know you know in California we have three commissioners on the board that are just absolute political hacks that don't really, you know, they don't, they don't deserve to be on any board um, adjudicating anything because one of them, I mean, he, he seems like he, you know, if breathing wasn't involuntary, he'd have suffocated to death. But, um, you know, it, it's just, 
it's just such a, a I mean, there's a, you know, the one thing about like, you know, going on Twitter is there's a really a lot of sharp guys, a really a lot of smart guys. I've learned a lot um, uh, from a couple of the guys just about betting, about uh, wagering theory, about uh, odds and, and, and outlooks on things. And uh, like, why are these people not being brought in and, and used, utilize their knowledge and their expertise when we change rules regarding uh, wagering, which, you know, that like, well, you, you said it, you said it best before, like a political hack, because there are people that are comfortable in their position, making a nice salary. They're not, they don't want to rock the boat because eventually they might lose their job because they realize they don't really know what they're doing. I mean, you have people that work at racetracks. I mean, you know, I mean, uh, I'm at Belmont enough. I know some of the people in higher positions. They're not all racetrack people. They don't all, like, they, they don't understand the game. They look at it more as, like, a business. But sometimes, you know, you know, I, I had my own business for years. Sometimes you've got to lose money to make money. You've got you, you, you to put an incentive for customers to spend more money down the road, you know, and I would, you know, lose money to make money, and and they don't get it. I mean, Naira, they don't treat their big betters. They don't treat anybody there really well. I mean, I know some of the biggest betters in the room. They're on Twitter. Some of the guys that bet Naira, and the, they should be hand over fist kissing their rear end for the money they put through the window. I mean, I've seen these people bet. I see what they bet in, in, a, in a day, and just treated like like just a regular person. They're they want to get the newbie that's never bet before, give him his $200, and entice him thinking he's going to bet more. They're not. Those people aren't coming to the game. You're getting those people for big race days and a day here or there at Saratoga. Those people that go to Saratoga, 95% of them are not going back and betting Aqueduct or Belmont in October. But you know, in racing, they think they can attract all these new fans, and they'll become fans for life. You know, it's a lot of work. Betting horses and handicapping is a lot of work. I just did Thursday's card for Aqueduct. I'm not even done. I probably put in four hours, you know, just watching replays. And, you know, most people, A, don't have the time, or B, have the patience. They get up at 5 a.m. and look at replays for two hours and, you know, of slow horses. And, you know, they, they continue to go after the, the fan that's going to go one time on vacation and think he's going to become a fan for life. You see what's at the track. You see who goes there, who are the regular people. They're not walking through the door except for big days. I mean, listen, I, I had on on the, the, the two maniacs before, you know, <laughs> and the fact of the matter is that they're, they're you know, they're, they're about the farthest thing you can find from politically correct. And they can be crude, and they can be rude, and they can say things that are, you know, make me cringe. But the fact of the matter is that those guys are are, are like, you know, they're like lifers, and they're attracting other guys that might not be, you know, everybody's cup of tea. But the fact of the matter is that um, the the only thing that should matter is is, is the amount of of green that they're bringing to the the the, 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 the you know to the pools that we have. To, to attract people to the pools, you, you've got to give them something that they want to bet on. You have to give them something that they feel, um, you know, comfortable betting on and, and, and feel like they're getting a fair chance and they're not getting ripped off. And, 
you know, we haven't done a great job as an industry in, in doing that. And like you said, the, the bow tie crowd, th- that, that may be the ones that they want to have out there for the big days and they can all uh, look around and, and, and smile and say how wonderful it is. But the fact of the matter, it's, it's the guys who are there on Thursday afternoons, you know, the guys that, that, that can't help themselves and, and, and look at parks on a Monday. You know, those are your real customers. Those are the guys that are that are going to be there, and, and uh, you know, people like them. Those are the people that 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 have already been attracted to the game, and they're not attracted because of anything that you've done, other than the fact that you're offering odds on a wager, and uh, and they feel like they have a some semblance of a chance to beat it. Maybe not, you know, for life, but but you know, beat it for a day. Or, you know, for a, 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 a sequence. And, uh, yeah, I mean, there's there's no doubt that, uh, that there's been mixed signals sent by the industry. And, uh, you know, it's just, uh, I mean, listen, we could talk, we could talk it, about it's this. It's a for, gambling, we, we, it's a gambling we, sport. It, that's what it is. It is a gambling sport. People are betting horses to gamble and make money. It's a gambling game. And, and, and that's the way it should be treated. And, and, and honestly, and it's a it's a gambling game from both sides. Buy a horse. There's no bigger gamble than that. <laughs> you know yeah. how many how many uh, uh, horses that that were purchased at auction for two, three, four hundred thousand and up have turned out to be busts. You know, most of them, <laughs> most of them. So it, it's a, it's a gamble, you know, on either side, and and we have to keep attracting both those type of gamblers because if we don't get more people interested in owning horses then the game is just going to continue to shrink um and if we don't obviously get more people interested in playing the races then the game will just continue to shrink and i'm not smart enough to come up with uh, an industry that, that shrunk itself into uh into major success maybe there is but I can't think of one, and and uh, I mean, I talked about this a couple of weeks ago. I said, you know, part of the problem is that we have an ish, you know, an area now where where most of the racetracks don't seem to want to be racetracks, and you know, that you talk about the fundamentals, you have to have a place to race at, and when the tracks want to close, and you know, the Churchill Downs is closed, um, you know, Arlington Park, I, a friend of mine. Uh, uh, has never been there, and he's he's living in Kentucky now. And I said, you know, you really got to go up there and, and see the place. And then I was like, well, honestly, maybe you shouldn't, because when you get there and, and you see how what a you know amazingly nice you know facility it is, and, and it's just a great place. And then think to yourself, well, yeah, they're tearing this place down. <laughs> you know, it's the like, most beautiful track I've ever been to. I've been to a few nights in the Kingland. I've been to Tenerife Del Mar. And Arlington is, is just the nicest, just the most, the nicest track I've ever been to. The it's, prettiest track. Yeah, and then think. I mean, look at look at in your backyard. You have Hialeah there. Yeah. I've never been there. I just see pictures of it, and the place looks amazing. Even when they're not racing, I guess they're racing quarter horses, and they have like the casino or car group. But just the upkeep, they're still keeping it upkeep. I mean, that place would would be the nicest track in America if they opened it up. And have real racing there, and it's just sitting there. The last, and I know uh, there's reasons why they're not going to open it, and it's it's, it's more than money. Racing it's, it's about it's, it's about worth more something else. It's, but it's about it's money. a shame. It's all about the bottom line, and that's the that's you know, 
I was a Hialeah the last two. I was stable to Hialeah the last two years of of regular thoroughbred racing over there. When was that? Uh, a 2000, uh, 2000 or two thousand yeah, I think two thousand two thousand one. And um, you know when when you when you got there every morning, and you walked down the the backstretch. It was this this long path going down the whole backstretch, a horse path, and um, had the, these pine trees, these you know hundred year old pine trees on both sides and. You, you walk down the the horse path and you, you turn left and and into into the paddock because the paddock was at the back of the the backyard entrance, and, and just you know took in the whole place. I mean, it, it felt like you were walking back in history. Um, you know, it could have been 1950 when when you were standing there and and you know looking at the the whole grandstand and um, especially in the morning, just the way the light hit it, it was just a. I mean, every day, you know, you'd kind of marvel at, like, wow, like, this is amazing that I'm actually here at this place and how, how great it is. And now, you know, the only thing they use it for other than the casino is to, like, host weddings and and things like that. And it's like, man. Don't they run, like, a quarter horse meet, like, for, like, one week or something? It's like a, they run, like, a fake meet. It's not even racing. It's, it's, they, they run 100 yards. They're not even, they're, like, <laughs> ponies. And it's just the... In the state of Florida, the the definition of a paramutual race is so um, it, it's so open ended. Essentially, you have to start from a gate, have to end at a finish line, and uh, you know have to be two horses, two or more competitors. And um, I mean, they're just you know they're all they're doing is 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 getting the bare minimum of what is defined as a race and. Uh, most of the race, you know, they have zero dollars bet on them, so it's like, you know, it's just a, it's a sham. It's not really, uh, it's not really racing. It's not even like crappy racing. It's it's just a, it's a gimmick to to just honestly that they should just amend the law and just say you know what, forget it. <laughs> you know, at this point, just what why why are we even bothering with with that? Just just let them do it and let, let you know. Like, why even have that? It doesn't make any so, sense to you. Well, don't they have that stupid law at Tampa where they got to run, like, three days in the middle of July or something? Uh, that, that's, the, that, that's a simulcast issue. It's a fiscal year. That's Florida. You know, the, the Florida, the fiscal year ends June 30th and starts back July 1st. So uh, they have to run the last day and then the first day because of the way the simulcast law was written. Um, it used to be that the, I think Calder was the hub for all simulcast wagers made in the state of Florida because, you know, they had the most days. Um, and then Tampa, you know, figured out the the loophole in the law if they raced on those two days that they could be, um, they could get, uh, you know, they didn't have to go through Calder, put it that way. Therefore, they mm-hmm. would make more money. They wouldn't have to pay them. And Gulfstream does the same thing. Um they they run on the the the, the first the thirtieth and the first every year too. I mean that's part of the regular meet. But if they have to run on like a Monday and Tuesday to do that, they will. Um, and this way, you know, no one becomes the quote unquote hub. But uh, you know, it's just there's a lot of kind of archaic laws that are written, and a lot of them are throwbacks to when the the landscape of racing was was far 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 different. Um, and you know this state in Florida, it, it's a the gaming is is a mess. There's all kinds of kind of look. Sounds like you know backhanded deals. The governor's getting involved, and Trump's place in Doral is supposed to try to. They're trying to get a casino license for them, and 
the Fountain Blue Hotel and, and South Beach, they're trying to get a license transferred from Hollywood Dog Track to, to you know, to the to the place on South Beach, and um, it, it's just a you know, I mean, we've had lawsuits against Calder for the building issue. The the law stated that a it had to be a continuous building from the the racetrack to the, uh, the casino, and of course that 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 didn't happen, and we won the lawsuit and. The state hasn't 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 shut one single day of racing ta- or uh, the casino down there. So, you know, the things you learn as an adult sometimes, like when you're a kid, you think that like you you know things have a happy ending all the time, and that uh, you know you get you you win a lawsuit, you you actually win the lawsuit. But <laughs> when when the government's involved, it seems though uh, it, it seems as though it's it's questionable if you're actually winning or losing and uh but um you know it's 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 complicated it's a really complicated um thing the simulcast the money's bet through simulcast is so complicated now because it's coming from so many different sources and there's so many different hands in the till and depending on where the state is where in the state they're bet there might be a source market fee, there might be a state fee, there might be this, there might be that. And like it used to be a very simple equation when most of the money was bet on track, you would make, a, you know, you assume about 20, 21% takeout and the horseman got seven, the track got seven, the state got seven, you know, kind of cut up nice and nice and easy. But these days it's, it's so much different. And, and uh, you know, there's the ADWs are, are, you know they're rebating guys big time, so they don't want to see takeout you know lowered because that's going to lower the rebates. And I mean it, it's just a really complicated kind of a boring um, segment, but um, you know the, the, just just it's just not an interesting um, topic. But uh, it, it's interesting, I guess, in, in the effect in that you don't realize how crazy that um, you know a dollar bet. Here versus the dollar bet here versus the dollar bet here, it's just such a, a, a drastically different, um, uh, you know, it's cut up in a drastically different way depending on where it's bet and uh, you know where it's bet at, where it's bet on, and it's it's really uh, it's it's complicated and racing screwed up really badly because they looked at simulcasting like it was found money. Instead of looking at it as, um, you know, having the potential to, uh, you know, let someone else take your customers, which is kind of what's happened in a lot of ways. But, uh, you know, the compensation in the beginning was was ludicrously small because they just looked at it like found money. uh, You know, no one had the vision to say, hey, at some point people are going to not want to drive to a racetrack and bet. And they're going to be, you know, have the ability to bet, um, you know, first through phones, uh, you know, phone wagers. Uh, when when I was a kid, my dad had a OTB phone account. We used to call in, and you'd you'd have a, a code number and a code a password, and you'd give them that, and then then you'd make the bet, just almost like you were betting a, with a with a with a rat, with an actual bookie. And uh, you know, I mean, personal computers didn't even exist, so you know, you can't. You can't knock people for not seeing that happening because they they weren't even a thing. But uh, but it's crazy, and you know, I don't know. I don't know where we really go because 
I think that a lot of these um, markets are, are just they're saturated, and, and now you have sports betting coming on board, and um, horsemen's groups and racetracks and, and commissions have never been um, have never really seen the the light in, in terms of trying to grow something as opposed to trying to tax it, which is what they do. Um, California, you know, is, is probably the, the worst offender at, at uh, taking more and more and more money. And when the handle goes down, they, they don't see the reason that the part of, you know, the big part of the reason is that, um, you know, the cost of a wager is too high. And, you know, it's just, it's, it's frustrating because it's, it's at the point now where um, I just don't know how to unwind it. I really don't. States are getting cash strapped. <laughs> it's only going to get worse. They're going to look to, to take money wherever they can, and you know they're going to you know, look. Gambling is not looked upon generally as a positive out there by the everyday person. So, you know, I can't see it getting better. As states need more and more money, I can only, in a way, see getting it worse. And the problem is, betters like us, we continue to bet the high takeout. And with whatever uh, restrictions are getting imposed on us, it's not really helping matters because, you know, handles getting, some of these handles in these days are ridiculous. You look at some handles for a regular a race at Aqueduct, a couple hundred thousand dollars for a cheap cleaning race at Aqueduct. I mean, it's insane to think how much is being bet on really slow horses. I've seen races. And, I've seen races at Gulfstream. Sixty-two five climbers, full field, one point two million. Yeah, I mean <laughs> you know, it's crazy. Yeah, it's purse is like sixteen thousand. <laughs> you know, and, yeah, and uh, it's 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 nuts. But um, I'm real slow horse. It's <laughs> a lot of money. <laughs> no, I hear you. Anyway, listen, man. Thank you for for giving your time. It certainly was more than fifteen minutes, and um, <laughs> uh, hopefully. Uh, Hopefully your son keeps 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 on keeping on and getting better and better. And uh, thanks. We got a game tonight. We got a game in Queens tonight. Oh, uh, well, do a little coaching tonight, and hopefully I'll have a voice tomorrow. Don't get teed up, man. Don't 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 be one of them yeah. guys. Don't be getting teed up. Uh, no, I'm, I'm pretty I'm pretty good with the refs. I'm pretty good. It's more of uh, it's more of getting you know talking to my kids. But uh, you know, I've learned. You know, you're not getting anywhere with the rest. You know, you, you try to work them and, and you, you try to talk them quietly. But mm-hmm. you know, just when I first started coaching, I used to yell out of them. You get less and less calls. They, you know, they just they hate you more. I kind of just shut my mouth and you know, and then speak to them when a the kid's on a foul line. Like you know, the team fouls are six versus two, and they're being just as aggressive going to the hoop. You know, they got to even out sooner or later. So. Yeah, uh, you know, you know, maybe, maybe all from uh, you know, like a a shell card, get pay for their gas. They might, uh, they might, they might help you. Out. <laughs> but I would love to love to come on again when you when you handicap some races. Maybe. Uh, oh, I don't handicap. Do a no, 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 no. I don't do any handicapping of races. I thought you guys. No, races. Barry and Jason do. Not me. No, 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 uh, no, no. I, 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 I can't. Uh, I, I can't jump on that bandwagon. Ken Rudolph got mad because he said all these 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 uh, 
podcast do is, is pick horses and i said no that ain't happening with me i ain't picking no horses for nobody i mean I, <laughs> I, I, if i do any handicapping i put out a, a newsletter every week and, and and we basically talk about whatever triple crown yeah, the, prep uh you, you, you had know, the tampa bay derby winner yes i did that was uh, a miracle and <laughs> uh, you no i'm not betting him back in his next start unless he scratches in the derby and runs up in, in woodbine in some polyjack race but uh <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, I'll be honest. I, I think that's a. I, I don't know what the reasoning is, and and but that's not a winning strategy. Though, though, I, you know, like I said, we're like thirty eight days away from the Derby, and there's a bunch of horses that people are still talking about that have never ran two turns. You know, yeah. there's a mile and a quarter race looming in in the month, and they have never even run two turns yet. And I just don't know how you prepare a horse to do that without doing that. You know, but uh, but hey, you know, those guys are. Getting paid the big bucks, so we'll see what happens. No, Friday, Friday night, uh, Barry and Jason are going to break down Jason Bytus. Um, I think, I guess, Jose Lescano's got to be getting ready to come back pretty soon. He's that's his agent, and uh, you know he's been out because yep. he had surgery. So, so Jay's got some free time, and uh, they're going to break down the races. Those guys are much, much, much better handicappers than I am. So, I'm, I'm a good. Uh, I can, I can throw horses out, but. Uh, you know, it's one of the things that, you know, I don't get on it too long, but they, I really wish, um, I talked to Oak Crunk about this on, on the, the day he was on the podcast. I really, really wish I had a chance to bet into the, um, the, um, the exchanges because to me, it, it would be fun to take overpriced horses and offer higher odds on them. You know, a horse that's three to five and I was like, I really don't like this horse and give even money and see how much, you know, you play you can get. But, uh, but it was an, you know, I, I don't know. I, th- I think the exchanges would be good, but again, it's it's you know they they taxed, um, you know, the players in Jersey at twelve percent, and the, the people betting in England were paying five percent. So that's a huge, <laughs> it's a huge swing to try to overcome. So, but anyways, I do appreciate you uh, you uh, coming on and giving us some time, and good luck in the game tonight, and uh, we'll talk for sure. All right, thank you, Dan. All right, thank you, me on, Chuck. Thank you, Dan. Talk to you too. I got it. That was Saratoga Dan going to coach a little basketball tonight. Uh, no basketball, I guess, until Saturday with March Madness, and this whole thing was is a little bit screwy based uh changing the days and all, but whatever. My bracket is completely busted. Uh, I want to thank uh, Swifty and uh, and Shoot for coming on and talking about Degen Nation. People sign up for it. It's a free roll. All you got to do is pick a winner, and you're going to get a piece of the action. Can't can't uh, free money is a good thing, but check them out at uh, on YouTube. And uh, I do want to thank Saratoga Dan. I want to thank BRL Equine and uh, Pleasant Acre Farms for their their sponsorship and uh, support. And everybody else, I appreciate all the kind words and the people that have sent uh, messages and and such uh, emails. Uh, we do, like I said, we're going to have a show on on uh friday and um i'm going to have a mega size going in circles digest uh coming out probably thursday so look for that we have a new restaurant review that's going to be up uh jovi's uh racing restaurant review and uh, uh looking forward to to getting that out all right well thank you everyone thank you casey for uh putting up with our overtime and uh We will see you next week.
Why, in the past decade, has BRL Equine become the premier equine supplement company in the industry? Because we spend millions in research and development before we ever put out a product. Because we use only FDA-supervised facilities to manufacture for us. Because what we say is in them is in them. Because they work. Because if you're not happy, I'll give you your money back. And because top trainers and veterinarians in thoroughbred racing, standard bread racing, three-day eventing, and barrel racing all trust in BRL Equine. Shouldn't you? To find out more how Flexify HA, Unlock, Bleeder Shield, and EPO Equine can help you, contact me, Joseph Volante, 215-501-6880. This is the Going in Circles podcast, hosted by horseman Chuck Simon. To become a sponsor, to suggest topics, or for questions, email goingincirclespodcast at gmail.com. And log on to our Facebook page, Going in Circles Podcast. Here's your host, Chuck Simon.